Man, if you have your Bibles this morning, open to the book of Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we're just going to be continuing through the book of Mark here this morning. We'll be looking at verses 13 through verse 17. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I don't believe that it's a surprise to anybody that's sitting here this morning that we live in a world and in a society that is deeply divided. We are divided by ethnicity, we're divided by culture, we're divided by religion, we're divided along economic lines. We all have varying opinions about politics, about who the best sports team is, about who has the best coffee, even though we know it's Dunkin' Donuts. You know, there's so many things, our hobbies, the schools we send our kids to that divide us and separate us as humans. Yet, despite all these differences that we have in the world, there is one common, one fundamental commonality between all human beings. And no, not just those that sit in church, not just those in Dayton, just those in Ohio, or just in the United States, but rather there's a commonality that goes across the globe, and that is that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. This morning, as we look at Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, we are going to look at the call of Levi, who is also known as Matthew. So to not confuse you while I'm going through this text, the text refers to this person as Levi, but I'm going to use the word or the name Matthew since that is one that we are more familiar with. This is Matthew, the disciple of Jesus. And in Matthew's call, we're going to be introduced to two different groups of people. Both these groups of people have that same fundamental need, which is a savior. Yet these two groups of people come to different conclusions and have different perceptions on what their need actually is. My goal this morning is that in this text, we will be able to see ourselves and leave here, one, with a deeper love for Christ, and two, with a proper understanding of our own sinfulness. The tag for today's message is a tale of two sinners, a tale of two sinners. Join me in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. The Bible says, then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now what happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray, and then we will dive into our message. 
Dear Lord, once again, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, Lord. We thank you for waking us up this morning and bringing us here together to worship you and to fellowship with one another, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us. Lord, that through looking at the call of Matthew, Jesus would be made big and we would be reminded of our own sinfulness and our own status before a holy, loving God. Lord, I pray that you remove any distractions that may be here in our hearts and our minds and even physical, Lord, that we would be able to focus on you. I pray just for unction and freedom in the pulpit, Lord, that I would be little and Christ would be big. We love you and thank you for all you do. In Christ's name, amen. As we step into verse 13 this morning, we still find Jesus in Capernaum. Mark adds an interesting detail to this account of Levi's or Matthew's call that both Matthew and Luke don't add. Mark begins this story in verse 13 by mentioning that after Jesus has healed the paralytic, that Jesus went down to the Sea of Galilee. But as Jesus went to the Sea of Galilee, a multitude of people began to follow him. And now with this crowd in front of him, Jesus does what he always does. He uses this opportunity not to have a miracle conference, but rather to preach the good news of the gospel. This is a repeated theme in Mark's gospel that I believe is worth pointing out every time we see it. The truth that Jesus' main priority during his public ministry was not performing miracles, not being a good example for those to follow, but rather was to point people away from their sin and to himself to call them to repent of their sins and believe in the gospel. And this becomes even more evident as we continue in this text this morning. As you read throughout the gospels, one thing you'll notice is that Jesus was known to frequent the Sea of Galilee. I mean, can you blame him? I mean, if I had a large body of water around here that I could go to and walk the shoreline and hear the waves and see the seagulls, I'd probably do the exact same thing. And one day as Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, he notices Matthew. Verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And while that itself seems like a minor detail of the story, I don't want you to miss the truth that God would notice man. Or if that didn't do anything for you, can I say it this way? That God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, sees you. The text does not lend us to believe that as Jesus walked by that Matthew was sitting there flagging Jesus down and telling Jesus to come over, wanting some of Jesus, but rather Jesus being God noticed Matthew and initiated this relationship that was about to come. Listen, this is a reminder to us of the depths of the love of God. It's the truth that even when we fail to think about God, God is thinking about us. That even when we want nothing to do with God, when we run from him and we hide from him, that he is continually drawing us into a relationship with him. But the story gets even better. Not only does Jesus notice 
Matthew, but I want you to recognize the details of Matthew's placement. Verse 14 again, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. The tax office was not a brick building that sat on the corner of the street or a office space that would have been in the middle of a strip mall, but rather it would have been a a crude, shanty kind of booth that was usually made of wood. So as Jesus is walking the Sea of Galilee, he comes across Matthew, the tax collector, working at the tax booth. To truly appreciate this story, you need first to understand the role of a tax collector during Jesus' day. Tax collectors, or also known as publicans, were some of the most hated and despised of all people. And I mean, not much has changed today, right? I'm not too fond of tax collectors myself. But during Jesus' day, ancient Israel was under Roman rule. And the Roman government would employ local Jewish men to collect taxes for them. And the way this system worked was that these Jewish men would bid on territories, promising that they would be able to bring a certain amount of money to the Roman government if they allowed them to collect taxes in this area. They would set up these booths on roads and at ports that were well-traveled by merchants and by people doing business, and then they would tax those people that were carrying merchandise or that were going between properties, delivering goods on these roads and at the ports. See, but the thing is that once the tax collectors met the quota of what they owed to Rome, anything that was left over belonged to them. So you can see how this system would lead to greed and corruption. This system led to tax collectors overcharging their fellow countrymen for their own personal gain. Think about it this way. It'd be like if I went to the city of Riverside and told them I can collect a million dollars worth of taxes for you this year. And they give me this contract to collect taxes. Now, I know that really all I need to charge is five cents per household in order to meet my quota. But I also know that if I can charge one person 10 or another person seven, that everything I make on top comes to me. So now you understand why these tax collectors were so hated. Not only were they traitors, by working for the Roman government, the Roman government was was oppressive of the Jews. They were the enemy of the Jews. So not only are you working for the enemy, but on top of that, you're also a thief who takes advantage of and cheats your Jewish brothers as well. Knowing this, one would think that as Jesus is walking the Sea of Galilee and he sees Matthew sitting at his tax booth, that Jesus would be angered by the corruption and the exploitation of the tax collectors. And Jesus may go to that booth and flip it over the same way he did the money changers in the temple. But rather, Jesus walks to Matthew. And while Matthew is actively cheating and scamming his fellow Jews, Jesus gives him a simple yet profound command. Follow me. Follow me. Listen, Jesus knew exactly what kind of man Matthew was. Jesus knew the greed of his heart and the corruption of his work, yet still Jesus came to to Matthew and said, I want you to follow me. Not many verses before, Jesus at the Sea of Galilee also pointed to Andrew and Peter as they were cleaning their nets 
after a day fishing and then went to James and John as they sat in their father's fishing boat and uttered these exact same words to them, follow me. And while Andrew, Peter, James, and John would have surely been surprising choices as fishermen to follow the Messiah, they were not scandalous choices. Listen, Jewish rabbis linked tax collectors with thieves and murderers. They were disqualified to be witnesses in court because they were untrustworthy. They were expelled from the synagogue and they were seen as a disgrace to their family. They were sinners who, in the eyes of many, were unworthy of grace. This call to Matthew, the tax collector from Jesus, was a scandalous call. It was an act of scandalous grace, grace that made absolutely no sense. Unworthy, undeserving, in the middle of his sin. Yet Jesus looks at Matthew and calls him to follow him. Listen, friend, this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. The world's religions tell you to work your way to God. They tell you to clean yourself up and become a righteous person, to do all the right things, and then maybe God will accept you. But the gospel says that rather than trying to work yourself to God, that God came to man. That Christ came to earth, lived a perfect and sinless life, and died on the cross on our behalf because there is none righteous, no, not one. Rather than waiting for us to get our act together, Christ calls for us to follow him while we are yet in sin. Jesus' call to follow me is not an invitation to trail him physically. But rather what Jesus is saying to Matthew is, I want you to take up the words and the ways of me. The word follow me in the Greek is a verb that speaks to behavior. It means I want you to imitate me, to obey me, to reproduce what I am doing. Jesus was calling Matthew from a life of sin to a life of holiness. You know, so often we tend to put the cart before the horse. We believe that God calls us to be holy so that we can then follow him. But in reality, God calls us to follow him so then he can make us holy. What that means for you this morning is that God knows your past. God knows your sins. He knows your flaws, yet he still calls you into a relationship with him. It doesn't matter what you did last night. It doesn't matter your habits, your addictions, or what demons you are fighting, whether it's a call to salvation or a call to continued obedience, this call is the same to the unbeliever and to the believer, and it's a simple yet profound command to follow me. And as we continue in our text, I want us to see that Jesus does not only call us in our sins, but Jesus calls us from our sins. Look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15 says, Now it happened. As he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. Later on, Matthew invites Jesus and his 
disciples to his house for dinner. But they aren't the only ones there. The text tells us that also at this dinner are many tax collectors and sinners. I mean, we can only assume that these group of people were invited by Matthew. You know, repeated theme throughout the Gospels, as you see lives that are transformed and people that are touched by Jesus, is that true faith tells. True faith tells. Listen, when you truly encounter Jesus, it's not enough to just follow him. You want others to know and to taste and see that the Lord is good. In this verse, Matthew, after being transformed by the power of the gospel, goes to his friends as a changed man. Now, that being said, I want to be careful to not preach the white spaces of Scripture. But I do want to add that I believe between verse 14 and verse 15, there is a gap of time. I don't believe that this verse 15 happened that same night. And the reason I come to this conclusion is if you look at Matthew's own gospel and you go to the account of him having hosting this dinner, you find that after this dinner, Matthew says that Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, visited. But we know from Mark and Luke that Jairus does not visit until a later time. It actually happens in Mark chapter 5. So there's this gap that happens. And the reason I mention this is because I believe this space of time between verse 14 and verse 15 has a whole lot of wisdom in it. I believe that, you know, it's when you're transformed by Christ, especially when you're taken from a life of sin, you're excited and you want to tell the people you were once with about Jesus, and you should want to tell them. But at the same time, so as to not be quickly tempted and led astray by your past sins and your past friends. I believe, practically speaking, there is some wisdom in sitting at the feet of Jesus for a season and growing grounded in your faith and coming to maturity and following Christ. And then when you are mature and you are grounded in your faith and less likely to be tempted by the sins of your past, then taking that good news to to your friends as a changed man. You know, because not only are you grounded in your faith, but also they see something different. You know, when you first come to them, they say, oh, it's just a it's just a fad. You know, he's just he's just hyped up. He's emotional. But when you come to them at a later time and they see that this love that Christ has injected in you has not ran out, they look at you and say, you know, there might be something real about that. After some time with Jesus, Matthew returns to Capernaum and burdened for his friends. He invites them to a party at his house. I'm sure some of Matthew's old friends, after being invited, were excited. Some of them probably had a bottle in one hand and a woman in the other. They said, Matthew's back. (laughs) It's about to go down like it used to. Listen, but when they came to this party that Matthew was hosting, it was a lot different than the parties he used to have. Matthew had been changed. His life had been transformed. And rather than being worried about popping champagne, Matthew was worried about his friends following Christ. Verse 15 tells us that Matthew's old friends came over and sat together at the dinner table with Jesus. In the ancient world, dining together was a primary expression of identity and 
belonging, to share a table with somebody meant that you were accepting them. And as they sat around this table with Jesus, I can't help but wonder about the emotions that would have filled the room. Tax collectors who were excommunicated from the synagogue, who were led to believe that God could never forgive them, nor God wanted nothing to do with them, now sat at a table with the Son of God. No doubt there were tears shed. There was hope instilled as Jesus told them how much he loved them, as he expressed to them how much God loved them and reminded them that God was willing to forgive their sins if they would repent of them. Rejected by their countrymen to now being accepted by God. And the end of verse 15 tells us that because Matthew brought his friends to the table with Jesus, they followed him. You know, just something real quick, practically speaking, that I think we can glean from this is that so often we long to get our friends and our family, our loved ones to Jesus. And the primary way we do that is say, hey, come to church with me. But the truth is a lot of people are hesitant to come to church. So rather than trying to get them to come to church, what they will do is sit at a table with you. Rather than trying to get them to come to hear Jesus, why don't you take Jesus to them? Why don't you invite them over? Why don't you talk with them and let them see what God has done in your life? And then before moving on from verse 15, this great banquet that is going on with sinners and tax collectors, there's one more thing that I want you to see. As we look back at verse 14 and 15, there is a truth that as I was going through this text really just stood out to me and I felt would be a blessing and a help and encouragement to some of you here this morning. And that truth that I want you to recognize is that the sovereign hand of God called Matthew from a life of sin to then minister to those where he once was. Or if I can say it this way, when God gets a hold of you, he can purpose your past for his glory. Listen, when God gets a hold of you, when he transforms you, he can take your past experiences, your past relationships, the people you once hung out with, the things you once did, and he can redeem them. He can use them for his glory God does not want to waste your past experiences and relationships. He wants you to use them. So often, you know, we get saved from a life of sin, which is awesome. But then we forget about those who are engaging in the sin we once were in. We turn our nose down at them. We act as if we're better than them. While what I want to suggest to you this morning is that one reason Jesus saves us is to mobilize us. Jesus saves us so that we can glorify the Father and point people towards Christ. Listen, if God wanted you to accept, or if God wanted to, when you accepted the gospel, he could just rapture you out of here. I mean, you've been made right with God. There's no reason that you can't be in the presence of God, but rather God leaves us here on earth in order to witness to others. And what better people to witness to than those that God has already placed you around and given you favor with? Basically, what I'm trying to say to you is, rather than being ashamed of your past, rather than feeling guilty and running from the person you once were and 
the people you once were with. Use your experiences that God has given you to glorify him. Chuck Colson was a key figure in the Nixon administration from 69 to 73. Colson was also involved in some of the political scandal with the Watergate scandal, which ultimately led Colson to prison. While in prison, God got a hold of Colson's heart. He transformed his life. And while in prison, Colson dedicated himself to a life of faith and service. Three years after being released from prison, Colson founded the prison organization, Prison Fellowship, which today Prison Fellowship is the world's largest outreach ministry to those who are in prison and their families. Listen, Chuck Colson was able to use his experience and his own redemption story to reach out to those who were going down the same path or had the same experience that he also had. And what I want to challenge you to this morning is to think back on your own path. Think back on your experiences. Think back on the things you've been through. Think about even the people that God has placed you around and ask and pray and beg God, how can you redeem my past for your glory and my good? Back to the house. On the inside of the house, there's laughter and joy. These sinners and tax collectors. I love the New Living Translation calls them disreputable sinners. Means there nobody wanted to be around them. They're there with Jesus having dinner, enjoying time together, fellowship. Get outside, there's a group of religious leaders. Somehow, I don't know how, but they heard that Jesus was in the house with those people. Can you see these religious leaders as they go to the house where Jesus is and they peek in the windows and are watching just the laughter and joy that's going on inside. And while Jesus is there having dinner, they're on the outside growing angry and getting bitter in their heart. Look at verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? You know, it's interesting that during Jesus's day, those who felt the most attracted to Jesus were those who were sinful and knew that they needed a savior, while the religious were repulsed by Jesus. And the reason I say that is interesting is because today, the religious and their piety and smugness sit comfortably in church, while so often sinners sit on the outside afraid to come in. These religious leaders were already angry with Jesus. They were already mad and upset. Just before this, Jesus had claimed equality with God as he told the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. And now this man who is claiming to be God, this man who has built this great following that multitudes are coming behind, eats with those they despised and rejected. Sinners and tax collectors. The word sinners here is a general term that basically referred to anybody that didn't care about the Mosaic law or rabbinic tradition. 
It was people that were outside of religion altogether. They, 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 they didn't follow the law. They didn't follow the traditions. So the Pharisees and the religious elite looked at them as sinners. You see, Jesus was breaking their idea of what the Messiah would look like. In their eyes, the Messiah would be a political leader who would come back and would save them from Roman oppression. But even more so, in their eyes, there was absolutely no way that the Messiah would associate with sinners. And I wonder even today, how many Christians put in this situation would look upon the Savior with disgust at who he was associating with. You know, man's sinfulness is not a reason to avoid people, but rather it's a reason to run to them and to seek them out. As the Pharisees question Jesus' disciples, Jesus hears their complaints and responds with, I believe, one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture. Look at verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They complain because Jesus is eating with sinners. And Jesus says to them, I came to bring sinners to repentance. Listen, repentance is a change of mind, which results in a change of action. When it comes to the gospel and Christianity, repentance is the idea that you turn from your sin, but in also turning from your sin, you're turning towards Christ. You're repenting. You're changing your mind about your sin. You're recognizing that your sin condemns you. You're recognizing that your sin separates you from God. You're recognizing the depths of your sin and what it means for your soul. Your mind is changing that my sin is not okay. But at the same time, your mind is changing towards Christ. You're saying Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the Savior. And you're accepting the mercy and forgiveness that he offers. Listen to me, friends. Jesus calls you in your sins. He calls you from your sins. And he calls you to himself. As the Pharisees question Jesus's fellowship, Jesus essentially says to them, I don't expect you to understand my methods because you don't even understand my purpose. Can I say this to you this morning? If engaging with the lost is repulsive to you, you've lost sight of Jesus's purpose and the mission of the church. Luke 19.10, Jesus tells, him, tells us himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came for sinners. In effect, Jesus is saying to them, since you think you're so righteous, I want you to understand the irony here. Jesus knows that in their hearts they believe they're righteous. He's not saying that they are righteous, but he's saying, since that's what you think, I did not come for you. It's not that they didn't need Jesus. They shared that same common fundamental truth that they were sinners in need of a Savior, but they didn't recognize that they needed Jesus. The Pharisees viewed themselves as already righteous. Jesus said, I come to call sinners to repentance. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, they weren't sinners, so therefore they weren't in need of repentance. 
So there was nothing that Jesus could do for them. The scribes and the Pharisees saw the sinners as spiritually sick, but failed to see themselves the same. And judging who Jesus fellowshiped with, they forgot how sinful they themselves were. Isn't that what Pharisees do? And to think even today of what we would call the modern Pharisee, you know, there's a little bit of a difference. The Pharisee of Jesus' day rejected him. But the Pharisee today is the person that recognized at one point in their life their need for a Savior. It's the person who repented of their sins and believed in the gospel. Yet now, further down the road, they feel as if they've made it. They begin to forget who they once were. They fail to forget that they too were sinners in need of grace. Listen, friend, Jesus did not save you from sin for you to become a Pharisee. He did not save you from sin for you to shun sinners and to run from sinners, but rather he saved you from sin to glorify him and share Christ. Jesus' analogy is simple yet profound. When you go to the doctor's office, usually you go to the doctor because you know that there's something wrong with you. Or you believe that there's something wrong with you and you think the doctor can do something to help. Yet there are some people who refuse to go to the doctor. There are some people who don't want the doctor's help. And the question that arises is, if you refuse to go to the doctor, does that make you any less sick? No, it doesn't make you any less sick. But what it does is leave the doctor unable to help you. Jesus is the great physician, but he can only heal those who recognize they are sin sick and come to him for forgiveness. Listen, this is the truth I want you to understand this morning. First, we are all sin sick and separated from God. It's Romans 3.23, that for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Two, Jesus is the great physician who left heaven and came to earth and offers healing for our sin sickness. First Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And then third, the great physician can only heal those who know they are sick and accept the cure. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised them from the dead, you will be saved. We say it again, all are sin sick. Jesus came to heal the sick. Jesus can only heal those who recognize their sickness and go to him for forgiveness. Listen, as we look at this tale of two sinners, it is clear that the Pharisees trusted in their own goodness, while the sinners and tax collectors trusted in the goodness of God. The question this morning is, which one are you? Are you the sinner who desperately recognizes your daily need of mercy, who desperately sees your depravity and your need for Jesus? Or are you the Pharisee? who Jesus describes in Mark 7 as the one who honors him with his lips, but his heart is far from him. 
the one who thinks that they've attained righteousness, who thinks that they're better than everybody else, that they don't need Jesus. Listen, friend, nothing has changed from Mark 2 to now. Jesus is still calling sinners in their sin, from their sin, to himself. The Pharisees were blinded by their self-righteousness and sent away condemned and empty. While the sinners and tax collectors were awakened to their sinfulness and sent home forgiven and complete. Every head bowed and eyes closed. So if you are here this morning and you have never accepted the free gift of salvation, can I urge you to do so?